hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Before we begin today's episode, we're super excited to announce the Deep Dive Workshop Series, which is the only virtual series or retreat that the Shit No One Tells You About Writing will be offering in 2023. Previous retreats were run over a course of a weekend, requiring our delegates to process a lot of information in a very short period. Now, since the best way to learn is to get to ask lots of questions and then apply all the theory that you're learning after you've had time to absorb it, we've decided to run a 10-week series instead of holding a weekend retreat. Now, each two and a half hour weekly session, which will run from the 31st of January until the 4th of April, will include an author, editor, creative writing instructor, or leading industry expert at the top of their game who will be speaking for an hour while referencing their own work or the work of others as practical examples of the theory that they're discussing and then answering questions for half an hour afterwards. 
This will be followed by a one-hour workshop in which myself, Carly, or Cece will lead group discussions along with writing exercises so that you can immediately put into practice the theory that you've just learned while at the same time getting to network with other writers. So we have 25 hours of jam-packed, amazing content lined up for you. You can see this full schedule on theshitaboutwriting.com. Look for the Deep Dive Series workshop page to see all the details there. The cost of the 10-week virtual series is $599 US and includes all recordings which will go out the next day, as well as various resource materials but we're offering two tiers of early bird pricing. The first 50 delegates to register from today before the 15th of December will get a $200 discount and will only pay $399. The next 50 delegates to register before the 31st of December will get a $100 discount and only pay $499. So you want to be one of the first 50 delegates to register so that you can get that $200 discount. Go to our website now so that you can register. Welcome to another Books with Hooks. I allowed Carly and Cece to be unsupervised last week, which resulted in some fun chaos and mayhem, which is always wonderful. But now I'm back and I'm reining them in tight. So Carly, will you kick us off with the first query letter? All right. Well, the first thing I wanted to say was that we got notes back from our audio editor about how the session went without Bianca. And she says they are so hilarious by themselves. And Cece said we are hilarious hot messes. So there you go. We, we keep ourselves entertained. Um, but yes, we're, we're glad to be here. Um, just a reminder, Cece and I have a webinar coming up on December 12th. So we hope you join us. We're doing our first five pages webinar. So if you like the type of content that we cover in the podcast, we basically put all of our best information into our first five pages webinar. So please come join us December 12th. It's in the evening, Eastern time, 8 p.m. Eastern. Um, and you can sign up from all of our socials. Cece, um, anything else we should tell them about our about our upcoming webinar? Yes, that we'll cover lots of practical examples. So you'll know exactly what to do on those first five pages. And if you can't make it on December 12th, sign up anyway, and you'll get a recording 24 hours later. All right. So for our first query letter today, here we go. Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, I discovered the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast more than a year ago, listening at first because the name made me laugh, but remaining due to the invaluable information. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and experience in an industry where many times authors feel they are traveling alone. I'm seeking representation for Breathe, my 80,000 word novel of book club fiction that examines a woman's search for herself and a life set against a recent divorce in the COVID-19 pandemic. Readers who enjoyed the camaraderie and group dynamic of Sex in the City and the self-realization of Camille Pagan's woman last seen in her 30s will connect with the characters and journey in Breathe. Amy thought that she had understood her place in the world, a mid-40s mother of two college students with a steady, if ultimately unfulfilling job as a reporter at the Metropolitan Newspaper. She meticulously did everything right throughout her life. From earning her degree to finding a husband to raising two great kids, Amy fulfilled all the expectations others, like her mother, expressed for her. Who cares if she never got around to writing that novel she planned or trudged through most days at the newspaper thinking about what she would make her husband for dinner or what function they would attend for his career? Amy had succeeded. But not long after their children left for college, her husband filed for divorce, complaining he did not want to spend the rest of his life with someone who was so joyless. Still reeling from his news and against a backdrop of the rising COVID pandemic, Amy is reassigned at the newspaper to the state house desk to cover the governor's press conferences. 
On her first day, she becomes lost, does not recognize the governor's media director and asks a question that brings the presser to a halt. She receives support from her friends with hilarious attempts at Zoom calls, perhaps too much wine and chocolate and a longing to be happy once more. When Amy again stumps the governor with a question, she gains a viral reputation and attracts a new acquaintance at the state house who may be looking for more than a friendship. Just when she regains some equilibrium from all the changes, one of her friends dies from COVID. She learns secrets about the remaining two that open her eyes to things that may have been happening right in front of her. Amy takes steps to find some of the missing joy her husband talked about, breaking a pattern of expectation from her mother. She unknowingly pushed towards her own daughter. As the pandemic loosens its hold, Amy faces the choice of returning to her safe life of the past or embracing new opportunities. I'm a hybrid author of 14 published novels plus various short stories and collections. My novels have reached number one on Amazon in the United States, Great Britain, and Germany under the name Redacted. I'm a member of International Thriller Writers Association and the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, as well as an award-winning journalist who never missed a day working in the office throughout the COVID lockdowns. Thank you for your time and consideration, K.D. Reese. Thank you. I'd be interested to hear the word count on that because it sounded quite quite wordy. So before you dive into that, will you give us an indication of that? Yes, exactly. That was my top of the list point here. Yeah, so we're at 535, 535 words. Definitely one of the longer ones. I think maybe the longest one since we've actually been tracking this. So definitely on the longer side, which I think everybody, everybody could hear. Okay, so first of all, the title, Breathe. Sounds a bit self-helpy to me. So I don't know. I, w- I would brainstorm a little bit more, come up, come up with a few other options there. And also because we have the COVID-19 stuff, breathe kind of sounds like, I don't know if ironic is the word, but it's kind of like, oh, you know, we're talking about COVID pandemic and like breathe and it's like people die and breathing and, you know, all of the lung issues. So that that title was, wasn't 100% working for me. So I'd probably try something else there. And so our comps here. So we have the group dynamic of Sex in the City and Camille Pagan's Woman Last Seen in Her 30s. Really like the Woman Last Seen in Her 30s comp. I think that's like, that's definitely what we need on the nose. The group dynamic of Sex in the City part. So it's not that I just like that as a comp necessarily. Obviously, you know, it is a brand. It is larger than life. It is so specific. Whereas sometimes when you comp to it, it's like, what about it are you comping to? You know, and so here it has like the group dynamic, right? So it's like four close friends. But upon reading the query letter, the entire emphasis is not really on the friendships as much as the divorce. So... I didn't, I just didn't think Sex and the City was maybe exactly the right note here, or the query needs to be rewritten more to kind of explain like the characters of the book are these four friends. The men are, they are sidelined, right? So I think we would just need to reframe the query quite a bit to kind of really, really capture that if if that's what we're going for. Okay. So, and then our first body paragraph, it's long. This is the part where I'm like, okay, basically it was an entire paragraph to say she did everything that was expected of her and it wasn't enough kind of thing. Right. Which I said in, you know, whatever, 10 words. So we got to do some chopping there. I think, I think that's what's important. And then the husband divorces her because she's joyless, but nothing about that first paragraph says she's joyless. So is it his interpretation of their marriage that he feels that I just feel like, you know, when we're talking about a divorce, a breakdown of a marriage, like it's pretty, it's pretty complicated thing, right? There's not one thing that, that leads to it. So this joyless bit just felt a bit like surface to me. So I just didn't really feel like enough heart there to really connect to why this is happening. So to me, the most interesting part of this query letter is this 
Amy stumping the governor with the questions, you know, gets this viral reputation for being a hard hitting journalist. I think that's kind of this, that, to me, that's one of the most interesting parts of the query letter, but the query letter is very synopsis-y, right? Because as we can tell with the length, we're covering a lot of like, this happens and then this happens and then this happens. And, and then the, the friend dying from COVID. So again, like if this is the whole, like these four friends are everything like that sex in the city kind of concept where the friends are the life partners, that's a big deal. That's a really big deal that one of these four friends dies, right? So again, so that's why I think we need to maybe reframe this query letter a bit about who are the main characters. And it sounds like this husband's a dud and we don't want him as a main character. So we need these friends to be the main character. So I think, again, we just have to do an entire reframing of, of how we're looking at this. And, and other than that, you know, I think the author bio paragraph is great. You're an author of 14 published novels. You know how to write a book where letters can be a different beast sometimes. And we know they are so hard. That's why we have a podcast dedicated to doing this because we know how challenging they are. So thanks for sharing it with me. Thank you. Okay. Will you give our listeners an overview of what's in those opening pages? All right. So we meet our characters, our four female characters at a bar or a club. We later find out in these five pages, it's Vegas, but basically we're meeting them. They're at a table kind of partying and there's something on fire and they're like lighting something on fire. And then like the fire goes out and then they're like, okay, let's go party. And so throughout the pages, we figure out it's the marriage certificate that they're burning. And then they're off to like have a little divorce party, the four of them and Vegas. And then as they're about to kind of hit the dance floor, our main character gets a call from her daughter and her daughter's like, where are you? What's going on? We're worried about you. Haven't heard from you since Friday. There's this COVID pandemic kind of, or, you know, at the time we didn't call it that or whatever. We, we talked about the germs spreading the world kind of thing. Right. And so the daughter's kind of saying like, Hey, you know, it's March, 2020, you need to get home in case they close the airports. And then we just kind of watch these friends partying in, in Vegas and scene. Carly, thank you. My inner Capricorn is being like, I really hope that they were burning a photocopy of the marriage certificate because bureaucracy is such a terrible beast that someone somewhere along the line is going to want that damn certificate for something. But that is neither here nor there. That is my therapy issue. Right, Carly. So what did you think of those opening pages? Just laughing. Yes. So the, the thing that caught me off guard is so you're lighting something on fire. <laughs> indoors in the year 2020. I'm like, who carries around a lighter? Like a lot of people don't smoke anymore. Right. So I was just a bit like, huh? Okay. It just seems odd to me. Right. Opening with something that feels odd can be good. Cause it can be like, huh? You know, the prickles go up on our back to be like, why is that happening? Right. But I think for me, I was just kind of like, okay, that stumped me a little bit about why this was happening. And as I said, it's just, it's just odd. I think for somebody to be carrying around a lighter in, in this day and age. So anyway, I had a lot of questions about that. But I know in Vegas, whatever happens in Vegas happens in Vegas, and that's fine. But we're not told we're in Vegas at the beginning. So that's what I was like. We're in a restaurant in, you know, suburban America. Like, what are we doing with lighters, lighting things on fire in a restaurant? So anyway, all that to say, I was confused. So take a shot if it's after five o'clock there. Sorry, can I just jump in there, Carly? Besides the carrying the lighter around, you know, there are fire alarms and things like that in these kinds of spaces. So, you know, in terms of the practicality there as well, something to consider. Sorry, carry on. I thought you were giving me helicopter hands and I was like, Bianca, I have more time. You are not allowed to cut me off yet. <laughs> yeah, so later in the scene, the waiter comes up and he's basically like, you can't do that in here, but like technically this is an outdoor space. It must have been like an indoor outdoor bar. And that's part of the scene where he's just like, just so you know, we have a lot of divorce parties and this is a common thing. And that's how we find out it's it's the marriage certificate. So all of our questions are kind of answered in these five pages, but it's a lot of like WTF for a little bit there. 
Okay. And so the other thing, so we're also, we're meeting all four characters, right? All four female best friend characters. And so there's a whole lot of like, Jesse does this and Amy does this and Amy gives a hug and then Jesse runs to the dance floor and Nicole leans over and does this, you know? So we meet four, four characters really fast. We have no way of identifying them whatsoever. So I think it needs to be like, we have two characters sitting down and then it's like, oh, Jesse walks over and then does this. And it's like, oh, Nicole is over here. You know? So we actually understand like who is who and Again, I don't like to do the like, this is what we're wearing and this is what our hair looks like kind of thing. But we have to figure out a way to know how we're going to meet all these four characters and make sure that the reader has retention. Because the issue is there's absolutely no reader retention on this first page because we're asking ourselves questions about what's being lit on fire. And then we have like four female characters kind of running around on the dance floor. So, oh, another thing I, I laughed about in this in the sample was the waiter calls it, we have big D parties here all the time. And I was like, that's pretty funny. So I made a big LOL for that divorce parties, big D, big D parties. So, okay. And then, so when the daughter calls and is like, okay, mom, where are you? The dialogue here was a bit, a bit sticky for me because basically it felt like in this scene, the whole point of the call was to establish more facts for the reader. Like there's something that says it's not basically then she starts feeling guilty. Cause she's like, Oh God, I shouldn't have went on this trip. You know, my kids need me, but they're in college. Right. And so she says on the phone, it's not fair to you and your brother, both away at college. I should have thought of you two and how this would affect you. And I thought you're just repeating the fact that they're at college for the sake of the reader. And that's one of those things that always trips me up in dialogue. Not my favorite thing, just, you know, saying things for the sake of the reader. And then I was like, why should she care about how the trip affects the kids? I don't know. That stumbled me up a little bit. But yeah, I, I, I think the part where the daughter kind of explains like the pandemic bit, I think that works if this is the way the novel is going to go. I'm still personally not convinced we're ready for pandemic novels. Personally, I don't think we are, especially when things hit too close to home. This is going to be an entirely personal opinion, a personal preference. You know, I just feel like I'm not ready. I don't I don't think I could sell something that's contemporary pandemic when we're still, you know, we're going into another winter with probably more ways to come kind of thing. So so, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel a little bit challenged by this by this premise that we are going to be dumping this book into pandemic life when, you know, you have a character in here that's going to die from COVID and there's, you know, going to be people who have had loved ones and friends die from COVID, right? It's just, this is grief, right? This is, this is traumatic. This is going to hit people hard, even if it is slightly comedic. So yeah, I don't know. I think the balance and tone here is, is tricky. I can see what you're doing. It's more just, are, is this the time? Are we ready? I don't know. You know, I have a lot of questions about that. Yeah. And for the writer, you know, introducing so many characters quickly is really, really tough. You know, a way of getting around that might be having two of them together at the beginning of the scene, you know, coming from the bathroom because women travel in packs to the bathroom and they're having a conversation and then they join, you know, the other two, etc. It's just it's really important to differentiate the characters up front so that the reader doesn't feel completely overwhelmed by that. And I'm sure you will absolutely figure out a way of, of doing that. And also, we hope that you prove us wrong in terms of pandemic novels. When when you sell the hell out of this thing, come back to us and we will eat our words. Right, Cece, will you read us the next query letter? I'm just really looking forward to eating our words in the good news section of our website. It'll be the best. We, we love to be we wrong. We can't wait. We can't wait to eat our words. You guys tell us tell us all the times we're wrong and you sell these books and we can't we can't wait to hear it. Yes. Okay, here we go. Dear Cece, Carly, and Bianca, thank you so much for the opportunity to submit my query and opening pages. 
I'm a big fan of your podcast and frequently walk past my house listening to it because I'm so consumed with all the practical, concrete advice that you provide. For fans of All This Could Be Different by Sarah Thankin Matthews and Real Life by Brandon Taylor, Emerson, 75,000 Words, is a queer literary novel that explores the messiness of identity. Written with heart and insight, this deeply personal novel is about growing up amidst family secrets and societal pressures as a young, queer, unemployed youth discovers both what matters most and how to stay true to herself. Graduating in the wake of the 2008 recession, Emerson Bennett finds herself unexpectedly jobless and living at home in her small suburban town in Derby, Massachusetts. She thinks this will be her chance to finally get the attention and praise from her parents she missed growing up with a troubled older brother, Malcolm. But just as she is settling back home, Malcolm announces his plans to get engaged to a woman he barely knows. With the impending wedding looming, Emerson tries to be supportive but uncovers Malcolm's hidden addictions after finding him passed out in the front yard. She attempts to talk to her family about what happened, but they insist everything is fine and not to interfere with the wedding. Fearing the loss of her family's approval, she learns to keep silent even at her own expense. When a job opportunity at an LGBTQ plus advocacy organization gives her a chance to move away, Emerson leaves for a different life where no one knows about her bleak past and where she can finally be herself. Desperate to embrace her new life, she throws herself into work and discovers parts of herself as a queer person. With a charismatic non-binary partner, Sammy, by her side and a boisterous group of friends, Emerson thinks she's finally gotten away from her oppressive past, but soon she finds herself burdened by the group's expectations of her as she strives to fit in. This is my first novel based on my own experiences as a queer person who grew up in a family with mental health and substance use disorders. I've worked in public health for over a decade with complex populations who face similar issues to those presented in my book. I blend my love of writing and health in my role as the health editor at the literary magazine Redacted, where my work has also been published. I live outside of Boston with my partner and two spoiled cats. Thank you for your consideration. Sincerely, Amy. Thank you. Okay, what's your take on that? So this is 450 words, approximately. I, th- I think this is a well-structured query letter. It's really just a plot paragraph that I believe needs work because I'm just not clear on a few things. So for example, does Malcolm also live at home? That was a question I had, and that's something that the pages did answer, but I was confused since so much of this is family dynamics, whether or not he lives at home felt relevant. I'm also not clear on how what's happening to her brother affects her and how it's connected to the wedding. So for example, she discovers he has an addiction. And when she talks to her family, their insistence is to not interfere in the wedding. It's not that the wedding isn't important, but it feels like it's more of like a side thing, right? Like his addiction isn't really tied to his wedding as so much as it is tied to him as a person and his health as a person. So I was confused about that association. I was especially confused about how this is even at her own expense. I don't know what that means other than concern for her brother, which is a very internal emotion. I'm just not sure how this affects her and her plot, especially, right? Because we can't have an entire novel with only interior conflict. We need a little bit of exterior conflict, too. What do you mean by bleak past and oppressive past? 
Not to say that a family who isn't praising you and a family who's sweeping everything under the rug isn't bad, because of course it is. But I was just confused because those words that feel a little bit strong from, from what I've seen so far. What I've seen so far is a family who likes to pretend that unpleasant things aren't happening, even really serious things. So maybe that is the intention, right? But I just felt like those words were perhaps hinting at something that wasn't revealed in the query letter. And if there's more to reveal, I, I kind of want to know. It, it made me wonder, maybe she can't be out with her parents, right? Because that would be a huge deal if she can't be her true self. When we're talking about the plot paragraph that deals with her new life, I was wondering, what does the last line mean? Soon she finds herself burdened by the group expectations of her as she strives to fit in. That's really, really vague. In fact, I kept highlighting these vague references, some of which I've already mentioned. Bleak past, oppressive past, at her own expense. So I think that a huge, huge challenge in a query letter, especially one that's that revolves around a character's interiority, is making sure that the plot is centered on the main character, even when it has to do with the cast of characters, in a way that affects their exteriority, not just their interiority. I get that she's concerned for her brother, for example, but what exactly, how exactly is this affecting her external life? I get that she is working really hard to fit in with her new friends, and that that's causing her to feel a little bit of interior tension, but how is this affecting her exterior life? These are the questions I had, and it's something that I really, really wanted to know. So I would tweak the query letter to just be a little bit more clear when it comes to that. And I really love the references to the spoiled cats. We love spoiled animals on this show, 100%. Right. Okay. So Cece, what was in the opening pages, and did you feel that they were doing the heavy lifting? So we start with the timestamp, May 2009. The protagonist realizes her father and brother left to pick up Chinese takeout without her, even though she said she was coming. And she's like, oh, story of my life. She talks to her mom, who asks her about a job interview that she recently had. And then she tells her mom that she didn't get it. And her mom seems to suggest that she should just get any job to help out around the house, even if it's one like at a grocery store. And she thinks to herself, you know, she didn't expect that this would be her life. She didn't expect to graduate with an English degree and be back living at home. Her dad and her brother come back, the whole family's eating, and the mom announces that her brother is getting engaged. She jumps in to say, hey, it's, it's, it hasn't been four seasons. You've only just started dating this girl. And her mom tells her that there's no need to be jealous. Her time will come. So, dun, dun, dun. so that's what happens. Okay. I... I have a lot of notes on this. In terms of big picture notes, the writing is really strong. So great job there. The sentences were crisp and clear, and I didn't highlight a single clunky sentence, which is almost unheard of when it comes to me because I have, I, I just really, really care about the writing. So really great job there. And her despondent emotionality was also very realistic. She doesn't, she does seem like someone who is aimless, someone who graduated and then had to move back home and like I can't believe this is my life so you've nailed the emotionality she is she does sound like someone who's going through exactly that however number one I worry that the lack of active emotions means that we're not curious about what happens next that this is something that I I I will die on this hill you need active emotions in the first five pages Number two, I wish we had more specificity on what exactly went wrong. What had she imagined that she would be doing after graduating? Did she picture herself working in publishing or pursuing a master's? Details on her interiority are really important to give texture to a novel. No one thinks to themselves, 
I can't believe that my future didn't work out as I planned. You think to yourself, maybe that line, but then you you add more lines such as I can't believe I'm not, you know, at a job, XYZ job at XYZ place working with XYZ things. We think in specifics. We don't think in generics. Number three, I don't understand her relationship with her older brother at all. I'll be super honest. And I think this is the first time on the podcast that I've said this. I feel bad for the man. You know, she does seem very judgy. Maybe that's the intention, but her mom had just mentioned the engagement. She didn't even know the person's name. She was still thinking about his ex-girlfriend and she was so quick to criticize his choices and offer unsolicited advice. I would be fine with that if I knew more about their relationship. Like if there was something foundational in their relationship that merited that reaction, even like two or three carefully placed lines to to tell me about that. Because then I would understand that she was just, she would have, she was having a tea kettle moment, right? Like where, where her emotions just got the best of her and overpowered her. So I would understand. But without that, I, I don't get it. Like it did seem very judgy. Like her mom just shared good news and yeah, it just, I just don't, don't understand. And then number four, do her parents know she's gay? Like, I don't need to know this answer right away. I'm fine reading on to find out. I just want the author to know that this was not clear in case you would like it to be clear. And if you don't, that's totally okay. It's really just me sharing. I also want to say that I, there were so many lines that I really, really liked. So for example, there is a moment in which she's thinking about herself. She's thinking about her life. And she says she didn't know that her leaving was the start of her coming back. It was as if her short life was over, how barely it had lasted. Her four years away felt like four months, four weeks, a summer camp that plopped her right back where she had begun. This is great, right? So again, you're nailing the emotionality. I'm just not sure if it's the right emotionality to start a novel. So thank you for sharing. Cece, thank you. Okay, Carly, let's go to your next query letter. Dear Carly, as a longtime fan of the show, I know that the perfect small town romance is an item on your MSWL, and I hope you'll enjoy my submission. The Jingle Run is a dual POV adult rom-com complete at 84,000 words, combines the client personal trainer relationship dynamics of Denise Williams' The Fastest Way to Fall with the holiday angst of the Taylor Swift song, Tis the Damn Season. Tenacious Melody Bell always wanted to make her mark on the news, but losing her cool on the vapid cable news show she anchors isn't what she had in mind. Summarily fired, Melody returns home to picturesque Pinevale, Vermont, with her career in tatters. When she learns her dad has ignored his cardiologist's advice to get more exercise, she offers him a deal. If he trains with her to run Pinevale's first Christmas charity 5K, she'll go back to New York and resume her lifelong quest to become a world-class journalist. The only trainer her dad trusts to get them across the finish line is Ryan Carpenter, the idealistic high school sweetheart who backed out of his promise to follow Melody to New York 10 years ago. Now poised to take the reins as CEO of his family's hotel empire, Ryan sees the chance to finally make things right with Melody and get closure before making his own mark on the family business, so he agrees to help. It's not like they're going to fall for each other all over again. The shadow of teenage heartache hangs over their first awkward training sessions, but as the miles add up, Sparks start to fly between quiet jogs on scenic running trails, impromptu snowball fights on the town square, 
and a sweet slow dance at their high school reunion, Melody and Ryan slowly realize there's new life in their old feelings. But when Melody receives a job offer back in New York and Ryan's father officially announces his plans to hand over the CEO job, their love is once again at odds with their individual dreams. Now preparing for a race is the least of their worries because they have until Christmas morning to decide if they'll run away from each other again or start blazing a new trail together. I hold a BFA in creative writing from the University of Maine at Farmington, and I've written comedy sketches for the Pinup Squirrels, an all-female comedy troupe. In my career as a marketing communications professional, I have written and or edited everything from press releases to the trivia questions you see at the movies. When I'm not writing, you can find me on Instagram sharing hats I've knitted that are inspired by the covers of my favorite romance novels. I live in New York with my husband and sassy four-year-old daughter. Thanks for your consideration, Erin. Thanks so much, Carly. By the time we air this episode, it'll be fine for me to say that Erin's husband reached out and told us it, it was their anniversary and he was trying to get her the It Just Takes One Yes necklace for their anniversary and he actually scored the last one. So for all the rest of you, we're sorry about that, but for Erin, happy anniversary. And also I got to tell her husband that she was chosen for Books with Hooks and he broke it to her at the anniversary dinner. So that's a lovely little story there. Okay, Carly, what's your take? Happy anniversary, Aaron. What a sweet husband. The stakes are high, everybody, for anniversaries now. There you go. Okay, so word count. So we're at 465. So on the longer side, you know, I feel like if we could get closer to 400, that would be great. But but yeah, I, I think it's long, long-ish. I'll give it long-ish. A really nitpicky thing, you have the words like POV as small letters, like like small P, small O, small V. But because it is a short form, normally POV is in capital letters, like capital P, capital O, capital V. So that was just a small thing that that caught my eye there. All right. So so I think with the, the return back to the small town hook, the most important thing is the why. Why do they have to go home, right? And I think this is a decent why, you know, the, the losing the job and the dad being sick, parents being ill, does bring people home, right? That's realistic. So I did, I did like that. I think that was a decent why. Okay. And so, and so now my questions are kind of around Ryan, the love interest here. So he is back in the small town. He is a personal trainer and works for the family's hotel empire. So it seems like Ryan's wearing a lot of hats here. So if he isn't a personal trainer, then maybe you just have to say like Ryan and, and her dad became friends over the years or something like that. Because I think Ryan looking a little, you know, frazzled and skittish and wearing so many hats doesn't quite look right for somebody that's going to be the CEO of a hotel conglomerate or hotel empire here. So I would clarify that a little bit. I think that'd be really sweet if her dad and her ex like became friends over the years. And I don't know, I think, I think that would be sweet. So that's the kind of thing that I think we could, we could tweak a little bit. The other thing is like, if he lives in this small town, how is he a part of this hotel empire? Because small towns don't have big hotels, right? They have little inns and things like that. So that's the part I can't quite wrap my head around is how this like hotel empire works into all of this. I think that's my main question here. But the rest of it is very sweet. You know, the, the coming back together, falling back into love. And I love a deadline, love a deadline. So they have until Christmas morning to decide. Love that, right? Because we have our little ticking time bomb that we have to work towards in order for them to, to figure out if they're going to be together. So, so yeah, I think it's really strong. I just really need to figure out the why, why the hotel conglomerate empire in the small town bit. Thank you. Okay. What was in those opening pages? 
All right. So we start in the POV of Melody and she is at work where she works as a TV anchor, getting ready. They're, you know, have the makeup artist doing all of their makeup. And right away we get the sense that she is not happy at work. She doesn't like the way the makeup is going. She doesn't like the way that she's interacting with her co-anchor. She doesn't like the way that their set kind of is, is set up. And she doesn't like the task that she has to do at work. So we're like, we're getting this tension building of like, again, what we know to come, which is like, she's going to blow up at work. So we're feeling all of that, all of that build up. And we, we understand a little bit more about her relationship between her and her co-anchor, which is like he helped her get the job and they went to college together for you know journalism school. And, and they'd, they'd kind of been through a lot and, and they know each other really well. We get the sense also there's some sort of love interest kind of here because you know, they, they talk to each other and they're like news anchor voices, but she kind of says like, Oh, I think he's like, you know, he's winking at me or like his tone, his tone sounds different there. So we get the sense that there's some history here romantically. And also that potentially there's also some, some, some love interest happening in, in the present moment. Okay. So what did you think of them? All right. So I think this, these pages get my, my highest compliment, which is this reads like a book, you know, that's really the highest compliment I can give anybody on this show is that this reads like a book. And I think that's great. You know, I, I like the fact that we're like building all of this, this tension, as I said, and I think a lot of people can relate to that. You know, you finally get everything you wanted. You have the job you think you want. And then all of a sudden it's not what you thought it was going to be. And you're just like, is the problem me? Like what's going on? And like, you're feeling this, this tension kind of building of what is going to be the outlet of my rage at, you know, being a woman, having to told to wear a certain type of lipstick and be in a certain type of outfit and act a certain way and be a news anchor that like fits into all these boxes of like the respectability and the way that, you know, people who are watching me on television are going to perceive me. And so I think we felt this closing in on her. I think we felt, again, this, this rage and this ambition and knowing that her male colleague gets treated different than her. Again, that's like, that's enraging, right? So I really, I really felt all of that build up. And I think she did a good job of like how much to tell us about, you know, their backstory. And again, that they'd gone to college together and is there a will they or won't they? And right before she goes on the air, her sister texts her about the dad issue, about the cardiologist. So we're seeing all these seeds planted. And the most important thing with a book like this is that she gets home as quickly as possible, right? Because if it's going to be like every other, like his, hers, his, hers, from a structural point of view, she has to get home basically like in her first chapter in order for Ryan's POV to start, or we're going to have two of her. And then, you know what I mean? It's just like, it messes up our structure a bit. So Getting her home as fast as possible is one of the goals of a story like this. And, and I think you're giving us lots of information about her, about her work, about her ambition, about her dad. And so all of these seeds are planted. So as I said, I mean, you get my highest compliment. It, it reads like a book. Well done. Okay, Cece, let's go to the last query letter. Dear Cece, Carly, and Bianca. During lockdown, I must have binged over 40 episodes of The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. Such a gift through a period of isolation. Thank you. Rock People is a contemporary upper middle grade novel complete at 42,000 words that follows 10-year-old Edie's journey after a family trauma. Fans of Marcella Pixley's Trowbridge Road and Barbara D's Violets Are Blue will love Rock People. When she calls the police on her mother, Edie Henry's life is upended. Now she is forced to leave Vancouver Island to spend a summer with her aunt Chris in Edmonton. Away from her family's fighting, Edie pushes the violent incident out of mind. Things with aunt Chris are different. Edie's stomach doesn't hurt anymore. Her aunt seems to really care what Edie thinks and wants. Edie even has a friend, Tate, 
who, like her, has trouble with his family and making friends. When Edie and Tate find an abandoned, half-built house in the ravine, they decide to make it their special place, a place no one else knows about and can be just theirs. Edie finds connection and the freedom to be cared for, to be a kid. Yet the pain of seeing her mom turn into someone else and Edie's guilt over calling the police stays with her. As summer ends, Edie knows one thing for sure. She isn't going back. She will stay with Aunt Chris and keep her friend Tate. But when her plan to stay goes awry and violent memories surface, Edie shares what happens and her fears about going home with Aunt Chris. Edie learns she can't solve her family's problems. And loving people who've harmed you is complex. As change becomes Edie's only constant, she hones something that will always be with her, her own voice. I have an MA in child and youth care and work as a child and youth counselor. I also have an MFA in screenwriting and a BFA in creative writing and have written and produced two short films featuring children and youth. I'm hard at work on my next middle grade novel. I live in Victoria, British Columbia with my poet husband, dramatic toddler, and a quirky Boston Pomeranian mix. I have included the first five pages of the manuscript below. Thank you very much for your time. A chapter summary is also available. Julia. Okay, Cece, great. Thanks for that. What was your take on it? Okay, so this query letter has a lot of things that are working so well. And then it has one thing that to me is messing with all the good things that it has. And that thing is the vagueness. So I think I want to know why she called the police on her mom. Like, is it intentional that we don't know? We know it's a violent incident. We know that she faces guilt over it. It it feels like it feels like there's a lot writing on this. So so I think I want more clarity. I I don't like the idea of this being a reveal, something that's only going to come out in, I don't know, the third act of the book. But maybe, but maybe I'm wrong, right? Maybe this is part of the story. I do think that again, I think that we need to know. That's that's just my two cents. Another thing that got me confused is. There's a line that says, Edie shares what happened to, to Aunt Chris. And does Aunt Chris not know what happened? I don't think that's super realistic, right? Like she had her niece stay over. So Aunt Chris is either, I'm assuming, her father's sister or her mother's sister, assuming, you know, that's her family situation. So I feel like she would have known what happened. Maybe the line should be, Edie shares what really happened, meaning... Aunt Chris thinks it's one thing, but in reality, there was another element to the incident. Now, that I can definitely get behind. So I would clarify that just because it doesn't seem realistic at all that Aunt Chris would have no idea what's going on. And then when it comes to the last line of the plot paragraph, she hones something that will always be with her, her own voice. Love that she's honing her voice, but what does that mean? Like, I had no reference to her either wanting to be a writer or wanting to be a singer or wanting to be, I don't know, whatever else it was. So I don't know what that means. And I don't think that the major dramatic question or the climax or any of the super important storytelling milestones should be both internal and vague. Like I do not think that works. It seems like a really sweet story, right? Really sweet story with so many interesting elements. The idea that she goes spend summer with her aunt because something really bad happens, especially something like calling the police and her mom. Come on, that's interesting. That got me curious. I would just work on specifying this a little bit more so that we can be curious about specifics and not just curious about the general framework of the book. Thank you. Okay, what was in those opening pages and what was your take on them? So the protagonist, Edie, is with her dad. 
He tells her she is going away for the summer. Edie thinks that when she comes back, it will all be different. Then she thinks if she comes back. Edie hasn't seen her mom in over a week, and it's because of what happened. We don't know what that is. Edie asks if her sister Maya will come, but her dad says it's just going to be her. We learn through interiority that she hasn't been eating and that she's getting really sick at school and having to run to the bathroom. And one day she didn't make it and the kids made fun of her. So she hates going to school. She goes to the beach with her dad and watches him and thinks to herself, she really wished he could be happy because he's not happy. She talks to her sister as she is packing, who says, look, I'm sorry about what happened, but it wasn't my fault. And Maya, that's her sister, says that their parents are handling it. But Edie thinks that they are not handling it well at all. So, yeah, that's what happens. And your take on them? I want to say that I think she's a really sweet kid. I have a soft spot for parentified children. There was a line that I highlighted and I was like, oh my gosh, I love this line so much. And we did so the listeners can appreciate it too. Edie thought she herself at 10 years old seemed better at being the grown up than either of her parents. And she knew her aunt was probably the same as them. So I think that that just says so much about this child's psyche. And and yeah, there's there's a lot here that's working and I made sure to highlight and give you all the compliments. But the purpose of the podcast is to make your work even better. We're an educational platform. So here are my notes. Number one, her interiority seems unspecific. I said this last time, last query too, we think in specifics. All humans futurize, all humans, but children even more so. I suspect it's because they have so much of their lives ahead of them. So for example, when she hears that she will be sent away, her interiority can't be focused on catching up the reader on what has happened up until now or not happened, especially since it's so vague. It has to be focused and it has to be anticipating what is to come with specificity and what she will miss out on with specificity. So for example, there's supposed to be a dance in the summer. She's going to miss out on that dance and she's not going to get to, I don't know, spend time with her friend XYZ and do whatever it is that they had planned. She would remember the last time she went to Edmonton, if she ever went to Edmonton, and she wouldn't think about something specific. And she would remember the last time her aunt visited, because I'm sure she's met her aunt. And if she hasn't, then that should be something focused on her interiority. It should be, well, her parents had never let her visit her aunt or her aunt had never shown up. So why would her aunt take her in now? We just need specificity of thoughts. Same with, again, what she will be missing given that she won't spend the summer where she thought she was going to spend it, which is, you know, her home. Number two, the vagueness regarding what happened isn't working for me. It's something that I picked up on the query letter and it's not working on the pages. There's a few references to it and it's it's just aggravating. One vague reference could be okay as long as there was plenty on the page plot, but I think more than one is is a mistake in five pages when you're not sharing anything new about it. Number three, I'm confused about certain references. For example, her mom leaving and her sister meeting her. She even says, like, even though her sister's older, she needs her. That needs to be more specific. Needs her for what, in her opinion, of course. Like what, something a bit more sharp specific would be great here. And her suggesting that she might not come back, that's in the first line. Like when she comes back, everything will be different if she comes back. What 10-year-old thinks she's not going to come back from summer with her aunt? Like, I don't think that you should have that line there because part of the twist is that she finds out that she doesn't want to come back once she meets Aunt Chris. I know that from the query letter. So that reference was just very confusing. And also, why would Maya say it wasn't her fault 
So I think that when Maya says that, Edie needs to think about something specific, something like, yes, it was your fault, or you make everything about you, or something that responds to that line, that line about it not being her fault, because there must be something there to, to uncover. Thank you for sharing. These are my notes. Thank you so much for that. Remember that we are still taking questions and requests for comps on our website, The Shit About Writing, on the Ask a Question tab. We haven't received that many recently, so I'm thinking we are answering all of your questions during our segments. If not, please hop on there and get those questions to us. Right, let's now go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. 
We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Today's guest is a writer and stay-at-home mom. A Nashville transplant, she's intent on instilling a deep love and respect for the great Dolly Parton in her four children and husband. The playbook series was inspired by the eight years she spent as an NFL wife and her deep love of all things pop culture, sparkles, leggings, and wine. When she's not repeating herself to her kids, you can find her catching up on whatever Real Housewives franchise is currently airing or filling up her Etsy cart with items she doesn't need. It's my pleasure to welcome Alexa Martin. Alexa, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. For our listeners, I just want to give you an overview of the book we're discussing today, Better Than Fiction. It's a delightful rom-com, and Alexa does humor incredibly, incredibly well. Remember that if you're writing in the genre, you have got to nail the witty banter. You've got to nail the humor and the kind of wry asides, etc. So that's something you want to work on. And if that's something you struggle with, get this book, study it because it's going to be an excellent guide for you. Okay, so let me give you the flap copy. As a self-proclaimed book hater and a firm believer that the movie is always better, Drew Young didn't anticipate inheriting her grandma's bookstore. The Book Nook. She's in way over her head even before the shop's resident book club, comprising six of the naughtiest old ladies ever, begins to do what it does best medal. Best-selling author Jasper Williams is a hopeless romantic. When he meets Drew at his book nook signing event, he becomes determined to show her the beauty of reading. He curates a book bucket list in exchange for her help exploring the local Denver scene for his current manuscript. From river rafting to local restaurants, Drew begins to connect with Jasper in a way she thought only happened in fiction. When messy family ties jeopardize the future of the book nook, Drew is caught between a bookshelf and a hard place. She's reminded that real life isn't always big dreams and sweeping romance, but Jasper is the plot twist she never saw coming, and he's writing a happily ever after just for them. So as you can hear, really, really interesting and compelling. So before we dive into my questions on this, Alexa, will you give us a bit of an understanding of your journey to publication? So it seems that you started off really writing what you know based on your being an NFL wife experience. Can you tell us a bit about that and how your writing career began? Yeah, it's, I mean, honestly, I don't want to say I fell in it because I definitely made the choice to sit down and write. But I was really just a romance reader for a very long time. And writing wasn't something that I had ever planned on doing. But I still remember me and my husband went on a vacation. It was kind of a work trip for him, but a vacation for me. We didn't have the kids. And I was able to finish my book for once. And I remember sitting by the pool and reading and like an idea just kind of flashed in my head. And I was like, that's, you're not a writer. That's, you know, you don't write. But when I got home, I just couldn't shake it. But I had three little kids. I mean, I think my youngest was one and a half at the time. Like they're super tiny still. 
And I just kind of, I remember I got like a notebook and I went down to my basement and I kind of locked the door and started writing. That didn't last for long because my hand cramped up. <laughs> I was like, let's, let's move this to a computer. But I even, me and my husband shared a laptop at the point at that point, And I created like a password protected account so he couldn't see it. And I didn't even tell anybody that I was writing. I just started writing because I didn't know what I was doing at all. <laughs> and so that book took me four years to finish, I would say, like I would start, and I would delete and I would start again. Then I got pregnant with my fourth child. and I didn't write it all when I was pregnant. Then I think really one of the main reasons I even was able to finish that book is when I was pregnant with my daughter, I met somebody in a mom group who also said they wanted to write. And it was both one of, I think I'd only told a few people in my life. And I sent her like a message. I was like, you want to write? I want to write too. It was like the secret between us. And we started sending each other a chapter a week. And her book's also coming out in 2023, her debut book now, which is very exciting. And we would just be like, oh my gosh, this is so great. Keep going. We didn't know what we were doing. That book is not great. She lied. <laughs> it's what I needed to hear. And when I finally finished the book, I like got on Twitter, as all writers were to do at that time. Who knows what's happening now? And I found this contest called Pitch Wars, which is a mentorship program. And I remember I created like, it's like a pimp your bio or something like that. I don't even know. And I remember I did that and it was kind of like, okay, cool. Now I've committed. I have to do it. I put myself out there. And I got into pitch wars with my manuscript that was not great at all. But thankfully, my mentors really liked my voice, but they were just like, this is all over the place. It could be women's fiction. It could be erotica. It could be contemporary romance. So let's pick a lane. I chose contemporary romance. They're like, now, like, do you think you could rewrite this? And the program was two months. They're like, we'd need a new first draft in like four weeks. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. The book that took me four years to write. They're like, can you completely from scratch (laughs) start again and finish in four weeks? I mean, I drank so many Red Bulls. I cried so much. But I think five weeks. I turned in the interceptor that is today. They were like, you know, you have this football story. Why not pull inspiration from it? And even though that book was so hard to write because it was in such a small time, I think that that's what I needed because I'm an overthinker. So to be able to just be like, you have to put these words down and move and you can't just keep going back. And obviously the edits, there were some scenes that needed to be cut. There are things that needed to be added, but it was really for me a masterclass in writing and what I like, I still, when I start each book, will go back to the email they sent me and like just check in with everything, like show, don't tell, how long chapters should be, just all the little tidbits of information they gave me. And I got my agents in the agent round, kind of connecting back to this book where she is mourning her grandma that I joined Pitch Wars the year my grandma died and I signed with my agent on her birthday that first year. So it felt very much like this like full circle, like meant to be um, moment. And yeah, so I signed with my agents and we went on sub and I got my deal for the playbook series, which was my first series in July. So I got signed with my agent in November and I got my book deal in July on my 10th wedding anniversary. So all these dates felt very big. Oh, I'm supposed to be doing this. Um, which is probably the kick you need in the beginning because, wow, this industry will really (laughs) humble you quickly. (laughs) Yeah, a few things you've said there really resonate. So, so many people who listen to the show say, oh, I've I've spent a year or 
five years or 10 years on this book and I can't get it sold. And because I've poured so much time into it, I'm just going to keep sinking more time into it. And sometimes that is not the way to go. Like I have heard of some authors, we recently had someone on the show who had spent a lot of time on a book. It didn't work. And then she went back and she figured out how to dismantle it and put it back together again. But I think a lot of books are just meant to be our teacher books. They are meant to teach us what not to do so that we can begin again with a whole new thing and start all over again and be a much better writer. And then also what you said about the overthinking and being given that strict deadline. That's super helpful as well. And I think that's why NaNoWriMo is so good for so many writers, because to try and write a book in a month, it's pretty much what you did, means you just have to keep moving forward. You don't have time to keep going back and be a perfectionist. So for our listeners out there who struggle with those same things, give yourself kind of like the Alexa crash course and say to yourself, okay, I'm giving myself four weeks to write this much work and I don't have time to go back and I don't have time to overthink it. I'm just going to keep going forward. And also what you said about prioritizing this in between children, because that's something we hear a lot, is that mothers don't have time to write. They're trying to steal time here and there. And it doesn't matter if it takes a bit longer. If it's something you're passionate about, it's something that you're going to get to. So I now want to dive into stuff with this book, because there's some stuff that you've tackled phenomenally well that I really think are going to be useful to our readers. So the first thing that I want to talk about is curiosity seeds. So we speak on the podcast about don't like show everyone your cards up front. Don't be like, this is my hand and this is what I've got. You know, you've got to hold something back, but you want to intrigue the reader so that they go, ooh, this is interesting. I'm going to keep reading. So I'm going to give you actual examples here from Alexa's book so that you can see what we mean when we talk about this. Okay, so here, and sometimes this is just a line or two. So this is on page six. It goes, my fingers drift to the pendant always resting on my chest. She, now this is being the grandmother, still left me the necklace. It's just now, it feels more like an apology than a gift, especially since she left me to fight off her son too. And then the scene moves on. That's all we get. She left me to fight off her son too. And then what we get on page 13 is once Drew's at home, there's a knock at the door. It's her sister Daisy. And we get, I guess spending an evening with her will be fun. It's not her fault that her presence causes my anxiety to spike and insecurity constantly lingering beneath the surface to claw at my skin. Also, if I kick out my dad's favorite child, I will no doubt hear from him ASAP. A quiet evening with her should keep him off my case for a while. Anything is worth that. And then we move on again. So you plant the seed and then you keep watering it and watering it until it grows and we understand what is happening. Now, can you explain for us, Alexa, is that the way you write the first draft or do you tend to tell the reader a bit too much in the first draft and on the second draft go, no, hold on, I want to withhold these things? How do you approach that? I think it's a combination of both. I think sometimes I know where I want to go. A lot of times, though, I'm not a complete plotter. So I have pinch points or plot points within the book that I know I want to build to. And so a lot of times it's layering. So it's less of taking things out. And it's more of like, oh, they've gotten in a fight in chapter 10. Let me go back to chapter three and add a little hint to build up to it. So it will be going back, I think touching back to my quick writing, I try not to go back too much. So even if I 
realize something later in the book, I'll just make a note of it. And then once I finish completely, then I'll go back and kind of wind things in rather than going all the way back and then rereading it all and starting all over again. But I like to layer more. Sometimes I'll forget. I try, that was one of the things that I learned in Pitch Wars was like, don't give too much information in the front. So sometimes I'm the opposite. I don't give enough. And they're just like, this came out of nowhere. I'm like, oh, sorry. (laughs) I didn't want to info dump in the first chapter. So I'll have to go back and add later. I did know in this book that I wanted Drew to have this relationship with her dad. That was at odds. I wanted her to feel like she had lost her biggest ally. And so that was something that I knew I wanted to happen. And having these little tidbits to lead up to it, I was hoping that readers would be like, what the heck is happening with her dad? So, and that her and her grandmother were so close. It's a, it's kind of an odd relationship to see. So you wonder what happened. Right. And that's exactly what it did because we were like a line here, five pages later, a line here, and it intrigued us and it makes us go, okay, there's something happening here. And for our listeners, this is how we make the reader an active participant in our writing, as opposed to being a passive recipient who's been spoon fed everything. Once the reader has questions, once they start theorizing, once they start going, oh, I think this is what's happening, or they keep reading to find out what's happening, they are actively engaged. And then you know you have them. And I love what Alexa said is like chapter 10, there'll be an argument. And then she's like, oh, wait, this came out of left field. So if you're that kind of writer, and this happens to me all the time, I'm a huge fan of layering, something will suddenly, a light bulb will go off in chapter 10. And then you do realize, okay, no, I need to allude to this character. I need to allude to tensions so that when we have this big payoff of conflict, the reader feels like it's a payoff they've been waiting for all along, as opposed to going, what? This came out of left field. We didn't even know she had a damn dad and now they're fighting, you know? So I love your layered approach to that. Then in terms of character arc, we always say on the podcast, who your character is at the end of the book should be different to who they were at the beginning of the book. They need to go on this journey for a reason and they need to be changed by the journey. And you do this so well. So can you give us like a sense of how you portray Drew in like that opening chapter and how do you incrementally change a character through each chapter so that by the end when she is this changed person it feels organic and not like oh in the last chapter she had her come to Jesus moment and suddenly everything's great and she's saved so so how does that happen organically on the page in small increments I think with Drew I first of all I would like to say I'm pretty sure she's one of my favorite characters that I've written and so for her I think Personally, I love, I mean, obviously write whatever you want. I love the write what you know. And for me, Drew was so personal to me in her journey through grief. It's something that I've walked very closely and writing this and going along with her really helped heal me. So it's kind of like, okay. And I think that's what I love about romance too, is there's such, there's always like a very hopeful arc. And so it's just like, okay, so she's starting this book and she's at this very low dark point. I also really loved that she was very pessimistic and like usually in romance, it's like this, the grumpy sunshine trope and like the man is grumpy and the woman's sunshine. So I liked reversing that. That's like having her be kind of grumpy and like bah humbug about a lot of things. 
can I just stop you there? So that's a perfect example of taking a common trope and flipping it around. You know, we always say stick to the tropes. There's a reason where there, why there are tropes and readers expect the tropes. But if you can put a twist on it, so instead of like the Mr. Darcy being the grumpy bar humbug sort of character, in this instance, it's our protagonist. And I freaking love that. Yeah, she was really fun to write. It was really fun to write these sarcastic, like, ugh, books, romance, ew. It was really fun to write that. And then it was really, I think, I really love, I know this is a writing podcast, um, Story Genius by Lisa Crone was huge for me. Reading that book, so, like, seeing, like, how it could work each chapter, right, like, step by step. So for her just to start in this really dark grief, because I know that place and I know how isolating it can be. So then to gradually bring in more people and to force her to open up and then to bring in this love interest who is sunshine. And even though there's a lot of angst within her, all the personal things that she's going through, losing her grandmother, she's kind of abandoned the career that she loves to do this bookstore thing that she doesn't love. And so to have this love interest who is like, I'm not going to play games, right? This is how, I mean, I guess it does kind of start as a game. Like you show me Colorado, I give you books, but to kind of give her this reinforcement that like you can be going through something, but that doesn't mean that it has to last forever or that things have to always be bad and that you can come out of this. So to weave in small growths, then touching back to the grief, there's a scene, one of my favorite scenes when she goes into her grandma's office, which she's still calling her grandma's office, even though it's hers now. And she sees the mug and the glasses and all of these things that she hasn't moved yet. And she's kind of pulled back. But then she's surrounded again by the people she loves. And it's just like, oh, maybe this is actually making it harder for me to grieve, right? And those small steps that you take. And then also equating it to books. So she's reading these books. She's you know, like we all do, when you fall into these books, you see these other lives and you learn things and you can become more confident in yourself. And so to see her kind of be like, oh, this book did this and this character felt that way. And why am I living like this? And to see each chapter and each little thing, how it's affected her. And I knew I wanted her at the end of the book to feel like, yes, I've lost my grandmother. I've lost something great that will always be there. I'll always have that. But to honor her, I have to kind of live the life that she wanted me to live, which is happiness and love. So to kind of get her to that point and surround her by the characters that could build her up. I love all of that. And again, for the listeners, I just want to point out here how integral the character arc is to what the character wants at the beginning of the story. So I'm always saying, begin a story with your character really wanting something, really needing something, and they make decisions to that end. And in this instance, this bookstore was hugely successful when Drew's grandma was still alive because everybody loved her. They came to the store for her attention, for conversation with her, for her book recommendations, because she loved books so much and she was the heart and soul of this community. And so at the beginning, the bookstore is not doing so well anymore because Drew herself does not love books. She is grumpy. People don't want to come to the store to deal with her. So this character arc is integral to the bookstore's success, right? Without her changing and without her becoming like the kind of person her grandma was to a certain degree, still herself, but still, you know, loving books and attracting people, this thing that she wants wouldn't happen. So we, we're not just having the character want something and then there's a character arc and these things are separate, right? They 
very, very finely interlinked. And that's that's incredibly important. So upfront, go, what is it that my character wants? How do they need to change in the story to either deserve it, to get it, to realize that what they wanted was not actually what they needed, etc. So so look at those two together. You mentioned Lisa Cron. So could you tell us what specifically from Story Genius appealed to you? Was it like the character's misbelief? Were you looking at the third rail scene cards? What specifically was of practical use to you? Well, the misbelief definitely. And I think with what you were just touching on, I think with through a lot of her changes, also understanding that she had a full misbelief right? Like she thought that her grandma left her the store because she wanted her to carry on her legacy and that the legacy was the store. And then at the end of the book, you kind of realize, no, her legacy is Drew. And she just wanted to give Drew something that could help her reach her goals. And so just how she was looking at everything from the beginning was a full misbelief and taking away that pressure of being like, I have to succeed. This is all I have left with my grandma to the end where she understands that the bookstore is not her grandma, right? And that's those memories are there and she can carry them anyway. So that misbelief was something that really changed how I started writing. And also, yeah, the third rail, I will fully admit that if I try to use all of the cards and a lot of the beginning, I freeze and I overthink and I can't do it. So I usually will, I like to reread like the beginning part of that book. And I also love the emotional craft of fiction. I try to read those between new books so I can kind of touch back in and check everything. I will say my process changes with every book, but the third rail and just kind of being like, okay, and then what happens and how do we get both of these things so that there's outward tension and inward tension, both moving at the same time, which um, again, I'm so glad that I didn't know these things when I first started writing because I would not have finished my first book. So it's kind of like um, the stories, the layering of the craft as well, I think. It, it can be incredibly overwhelming. We think, I've spoken English, I've written English my whole life, so of course I can write a book, and we don't understand all the the theory and the the, the stuff that goes into crafting a good story. And I'm the same as you. I hate plotting. I hate outlining. I cannot do all the third rail scene cards up front and know where the story is going. But as I sit down to write each chapter, I will try and do that. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, get Story Genius. You can get it from the library if you don't want to buy it, or there's a lot of information about it online. But the most important thing for me in the third rail is it's it's a scene card that helps you work through not just what happens in the scene, but it answers the question, why is it important? And then what happens? And this all links to causality. Something I see a lot with emerging writers is they have X, Y, and Z happening to this character, but none of them are are linked. It's not that X happens because Y happened, which then leads to Z happening. There isn't any causality, which means that if you take out a whole chapter or a whole scene, it doesn't matter. The story still makes sense because it's not like you needed that scene for the following scene to happen. Um, and that's what's important in kind of that third rail. It goes, why is it important that all of this happened? Why would the next chapter not be able to happen? Why would that scene not make sense if all of this happened? And it's a great way for you to kind of connect the dots and do causality. 
Alexa, we are somehow out of time. I'm not quite sure how the heck that happened. This has been such a wonderful discussion. For our listeners, please get better than fiction. And last thing I want to say is we're always talking about a hook. And what I loved about this, which was a kind of hook, is saying, imagine if you don't like books and you don't like reading and you inherit a bookstore. Because all of us who like reading are like, are you freaking kidding me? What is this? What is this? You don't like books? You don't like bookstores? What is wrong with you? And most of us, this is like our biggest dream come true. And here we have this grumpy pants who's like, oh, I don't like books, don't like a bookstore. And then she gets a bookstore. So it's also like taking a premise and something like you've got mail, for example, and turning it on its head. Instead of having someone who's desperate to fight for this bookstore because they love books, etc. It's someone who doesn't like books, who didn't want a bookstore, but is kind of fighting for it because of their love for their grandmother. Alexa, thank you so, so much. I absolutely adored this book. For our listeners, get it so that you can see those curiosity seeds, so you can see the causality, so you can see the phenomenal character arc, and you can see the journey in terms of the character's misbelief. Alexa, we hope to have you back for the next book. It was an absolute joy chatting with you, and thanks for sharing all of this experience with us. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. I really enjoyed it. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday, the 11th of May, from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.